Welcome to Breaking Bad News, Apron Food PR's podcast about food brands, recalls, withdrawals, alerts and issues, and the way they're treated in the press and on social media. Your hosts are Jenny Gregorsik, managing partner of Apron Food PR, and Jeff Hahn, author, speaker, facilitator, and Apron's head of reputation strategy. Welcome to another edition of Breaking Bad News. I'm Russ Ray, and I run the spokesperson training workshops and crisis communication simulations here at Apron Food PR. And with me is Apron's research and strategy guy, Jeff Hahn. Jeff, thanks a lot, and always great to talk to you. Good to be with you, Russ. I'm glad you're back on the ground. I think if I remember right, you were in Jefferson City, Missouri this week. Yes, that's correct. I just got back late last night, and I led a workshop uh, helping a client through uh, some crisis communication planning, and uh, was really a great session. And they appreciated the fact that uh, we talked about and introduced them to some evidence-based theories that uh, they could apply uh, to their crisis communication, rather than you know simply relying on speculation. And it uh, really gave them some comfort in their crisis communication planning. And I know today we're going to take our listeners uh, almost to the inside of the war room to talk about uh, the decision-making team that needs to work its way through a a bad news break. Yeah. So you got to talk about the reputation dissonance model up there in Missouri. But the model itself has to be activated by people, obviously. And so our In the model, we illustrate how a response team needs to negotiate five very specific gateways, if you will, as they go through the 90 minutes of the model. The question, though, is who's the team? Who's on the team? And it's a big assumption. Just like a recipe assumes you have a kitchen, right? A recipe, if you look into a a cookbook, it doesn't say, now, go buy a house install a stove, make sure it's this, that, and the other configuration, should have an oven. All of those are assumptions, including to the kitchen gadgets that you should have. The reputation dissonance model that we use for breaking bad news is has the same assumption in it. It assumes that we've assembled and trained up a good rapid response team, but here's what I think both of us know, you especially because you just worked this, that's a bad assumption. Well, I should say it different. It's a big assumption that a rapid response team is assembled and has roles and responsibilities they know. So that's what we're going to address today. So, Jeff, let's dive into that. Why is it a bad assumption that brands have a rapid response team? Well, rapid response teams are configured through typically titles. The assumption is that everybody just knows that since you are the CEO or you are the general counsel, you will be on the team. Those kinds of assumptions create a problem when the alarm bell actually rings. Maybe people don't know they're on the team. They haven't been formally introduced to their roles. Even if they have had an incident in the past where they've come together, the roles and responsibilities aren't necessarily equated to the titles. So in the model, we assume you've got a team, but in reality, we can't assume that a team has been assembled on the part of a brand because oftentimes, and of course the clients you and I talk to with others, um, they do not have clearly defined roles, responsibilities, or even people selected 
or pointed to, hey, you're on the team when something goes wrong. You know, Jeff, I know you've been spending a lot of time on the uh, reputation dissonance model. Um, why haven't you included the formation and training of a, a rapid response team in this model? Well, I've got it in the book, so I cover it pretty in pretty much in depth in there. But inside the model, you know, models are uh, the, the famous quote is, uh, a map is a representation of the territory, not the territory. Models are the same way. We focus, of course, in our model on the 90 minutes that count the most. That focus requires us to home in on just that uh, part of the clock that's running. When we uh, try to back out and imagine the time and requirements, and it takes months and months and months to form up a team, um, it's pretty hard to comprehend into a model where the real focus is on executing five things really well, really quickly. Well, let's talk about uh, who needs to be on a, on a rapid response team. Yeah, I should talk a little bit about um, that question by referencing some others who have talked about this before. Uh, my friend Bill Coletti talks about it in his book, Critical Moments, which is a good read for anybody. There are other people, other authors in this space, James Haggerty, likes the idea of a chief crisis officer. He talks about that role. Eric Desenhall, one of my favorite authors in this space, he likes the idea of a less formal structure. He talks about that his best clients are corporation, institutions, brands, we would say, that have had controversy and know how to be improvisational to move through that. I get why he's saying that. That word improvisational is going to come up a little bit later. Uh, Peter Stanton thinks that there ought to be a core planning team at all times. He's another interesting thinker here. And um, there are two guys, Richard Levick and Larry Smith. They wrote a book, and they like the idea of a crisis committee, kind of like Bill Coletti's Reputation Management Council. So there's, there are a number of opinions in this space. When I read through all of them and I think about their particular identifications, one of the things that frustrates me is they haven't designed specific roles that they talk about in their books. And so they tell, they tell you, hey, you should have a lawyer in the room, you should have a PR person in the room, have the CEO. But I would say that those are titles, not roles. And so that's what I think we ought to talk about is the roles of a rapid response team. And so how do the roles on a rapid response team differ from perhaps their role on the everyday operations of an organization? Yeah, you kind of have to. Uh, this is where that improvisational notion comes in. Roles should be occupied by people who are suited to them. That's an important point. Let me go down through also a, a counterintuitive notion that I have about how you assemble a good rapid response team by starting with the least obvious role, which I think is actually the most important. The least obvious, most important role on a rapid response team, I refer to as the rapid response team coordinator. Now, it sounds kind of administrative, doesn't it? Yeah, there's some of that. It's sort of, a, a, there's some administrative dimensions and management to it, but it's really more important than that. The rapid response team coordinator does several different jobs. First, this person sets up the convening capabilities, designs, engineers, and executes on the 
convening capabilities of a rapid response team. What's convening capability mean? It means we know how to get in touch with each other. We know where to assemble. We know what phone numbers to call into. They sound administrative, but guess what happens if those aren't known and, in, and installed? What's chaos? If we believe the, rapid, the reputation dissonance model, we've got 90 minutes to get this show on the road. If you spend your first 45 just trying to get people assembled and get people uh, on the same conference call bridge, it's, it's frustrating as all get out. And in fact, you and I have sat in war rooms and watched this take place where it feels like you almost have to clear the buckets mops out of the closet in order to, in order to get people to focus on what needs to be talked about. And so rapid response team coordinator is first and foremost coordinator, get people together and get them together quickly. That's, um, you do that well and you've accomplished the first big part of the model. Once you've got that, then you can move down through decision making. And um, I should stop just for a minute and, and talk a little bit about the activation of a team uh, can be done pretty seamlessly these days with uh, lots of different pieces of software on the market. And so rapid response team coordinator is um, responsible for setting up the activation notification software. Once they're in the, in the war room, they open up the conference bridge, they take role, are all of the rapid response team members there? And if they're not, what happens next? Well, then the coordinator calls the backup, gets them into the room. I also have watched in dozens of different, and I've actually served in this role for clients, uh, dozens of different times when a really good rapid response coordinator takes control of the keyboard. They've got a projector or a TV up on the wall, and they are writing the words of a statement that will be delivered in, down the road in the sequence of activities. But a really good one can uh, listen to a number of different inputs, synthesize that information, and craft a really elegant statement in real time with lots of input. You know, people are saying, well, change this to that and uh to the. And the coordinator, if they're really good, uh, is able to do that on the fly. I have to say, if I've done this well and if I've watched others who do it well, I would say this one uh, person makes or breaks the tension inside of a war room. Now, typically, is this coordinator a communications or PR person, or is it more about the type of personality and staying calm under fire that should be considered for the coordinator? I think you've asked it just perfectly, Russ. They, um, the a person who is cool under fire, I would say from a personality profiling standpoint, I like to use the DISC. We talk about the DISC personality test a lot. I would say you have a person here who with the characteristics of a DC combo or if it's Myers-Briggs, ENTJ. They see big picture, but they also are able to concentrate on details. Uh-huh. And that is a killer combination. And it might be that it's an executive admin who is, has that capability. Mm-hmm. It might also be that it's the, uh, the head of security who happens to be at the table. She or he has the perfect combination of skills to take over the keyboard and get everything set up 
so that decision-making discussion can take place. Now, interesting you say that, uh, but it makes a lot of sense. I think one might uh, assume that the coordinator personality might be the S or the steady uh, personality, but uh, uh, having that decision-making capability uh, seems even more important in uh, the initial stages of a crisis. Right, right. And um, I think we, with this particular description, get to throw away the notion of titles. Inside the war room, you're the coordinator. doesn't matter what your title is on the outside. In fact, um, uh, we've done work for universities where titles get left at the door. Even the president of the university is not the chief decision maker, which is the next role in the team. We'll talk a little bit about chief decision maker. Chief decision maker is the, is the substitute title for who's at the head of the table. Oftentimes we assume and defer that there's uh, the CEO or the president or someone with a title is the right person at the head of the room. That's not necessarily true. That said, my point in designing this particular role is that it's well understood, this person is the chief decision maker. They are where the buck stops. If you have a person who is um, able to make decisions and empowered to do so, even appointed to do so, a CEO may say, hey, Russ, you are the chief decision maker in the war room. Doesn't matter what your title is, you are the one who are gonna, who's gonna make the decisions, and you have an understanding of the implication of those decisions. Well, CEOs may sit on the other side of the room and become advisors to the chief decision maker. It's totally plausible, and I've seen it done well one time. The CEO had delegated that responsibility. It was pretty amazing to watch, I, um, and it impressed upon me that, ah, it's the personality and the empowerment of that person that makes all the difference in the CDM role. And what's a CDM have to do? Okay, they not only have to approve activation of the rapid response team. Somebody's gonna be, somebody's gonna contact them, it might be the head of security, might even be a reporter through media relations. But that person, the chief decision maker, pushes the button to activate, or to tell the coordinator, activate the team. Second, the chief decision maker has to see a big picture as well. Let's assess all that we know. And information that's coming into the war room is typically very fluid dynamic. They have to then manage the rapid response team processing and they've got to table unproductive dialogue which happens a lot. They also um, have an opinion about the statement that's perhaps being crafted in real time. They're the ones who approve that and chief decision makers have another really interesting role. They're the ones who have to look outside of the war room and say, well, the stakeholders that we really need to speak to may not be pri uh, primarily the public or employees, which is actually, staff is a terrific first uh, stakeholder in the process of communicating. But think about the perspective of a CEO. They also have to think about investors, um, opinion leaders that may be in uh, friends or family in close orbit of the organization, they are gonna need to decide how those parties, those stakeholders are connected to. Maybe not the first ones, they may even have to take those 
particular ones, let's say it's an investor, a key investor, and make a personal phone call versus waiting for the press release out. So that's the chief decision maker. The next role on the team is the deputy chief decision maker. Everything the chief decision maker does, um, the deputy chief decision maker has to be ready to do. And you know why? Because your mother was right. Nothing ever, nothing after midnight is ever good. Is that what she said? Um, nothing good anything ever. that happens after midnight isn't no, it's isn't like, nothing good ever happens nothing after good ever <laughs> happens it. no we get it took us a while your but mother, uh, we got it your mother was right nothing good ever happens after midnight and including this the chief decision makers out of town or out in the desert somewhere on a retreat deputy chief decision maker has to be ready to fulfill all of those duties and uh, do everything that the chief decision maker does in the room. Now, if both of them are in the room, that's great. The deputy chief decision maker's responsibility shifts more to process, really keeping an eye on time, and uh, also productivity. As uh, deputy chief decision maker can also be the approval of communication. So, in um, in this particular role, you want a person, as you mentioned earlier on the disc, a uh, steady Eddie, someone who's cool under fire. So I would pick a high S for this role. That's the personality type I really like. They're uh, typically rule followers. They um, understand how to improvise, but also understand the implications of shooting from the hip. I really like a person who has a different style, like an S-type, in this particular role because they're going to see things different from chief decision maker. So that's our third role. We've got the coordinator, the chief decision maker, the deputy chief decision maker. I would assume there's probably going to be a role for a PR person here? We like PR people. They're terrific. Oh, yes. <laughs> Actually, I've got, I got two roles for communications folks. Uh, communications pros operate in uh, distinct functions inside of the rapid response team. Let me walk down through those. First, the senior commun communications leader, the SCL, senior communications leader is what I call them, and they have to um, they have a different role than the communications manager. So let me uh, make those distinctions. The crucial responsibility for this role during a crisis event is to imagine how the message to be released may be interpreted by stakeholders to whom it's being released. They got to put themselves in the mind of the stakeholders, of the audience. And that responsibility, that's tough, especially in when the clock's ticking, the pressure's on. But that uh, service that they provide to a war room allows them to provide commentary to the statement being made. They need to, they're, they're the ones who can say, if you interpret it through the eyes of X audience, they're gonna think what you've written means Y. That's a crucial role and a really important service because what may mean something to one audience could be interpreted by another audience in a completely different way. So senior communications leader has to imagine the reaction 
and then do a second thing. They have to be the ones who prep the incident spokesperson. The rapid response team will have on it someone ready to be the spokesperson, either the cited one in a statement or the one who stands up in front of a camera. So the senior communications leader can be, begin to prep that person for what she or he is going to be facing. In fact, they might be that person. They have to be thinking about all of the things you teach in spokesperson training, all of the questions they might receive. So it's a critical role, one that requires some real creative thinking and anticipatory skills. Now that's different functionally from the communications manner I mentioned earlier. The communications manager is really thinking about media relations and social media. They're the ones who are tracking that. They've probably lit up their laptops and are tracking what's happening in the social space. Because oftentimes, and you as a former reporter know, well, let me not assume that. Um, is it, it's true that as a reporter, you oftentimes nowadays find your stories by watching social media. Oh, absolutely. I mean, um, the monitoring of uh, social media, user-generated content is a, a huge part of every newsroom now. You all used to have police radios inside of the newsroom. Too. Well, they, they still do, but uh, it's, it's uh, certainly advanced from that, though. Yeah, and so it's the new police radio, right? Yeah, exactly. The communications manager has to be monitoring the police radio on behalf of the rapid response team. And then they've got some mechanical work to do. The communication manager is typically the one who puts the final period on the statement that the coordinator has been writing um, and then imagines how to push the buttons to get the statement out to all the parties. Communications managers have the keys to each of these channels, the social channel, the owned channel, meaning the websites that the statement needs to get posted on. They can distribute the, the statement that we're imagining here in our mini scenarios to um, media. They know all of the, the uh, news desks and all the emails to the news desks that are important to them. They're the ones who have to make sure the message is distributed. They are the, the distributor cap of the rapid response team. The other thing I think that's important for a communications manager to do is they, they really need to serve as shields, especially for the chief decision maker. There's a um, bad habit, and I've seen this at work in several instances, where a communication manager will say things in the war room like, oh, social, social's blowing up. It's, uh, my phone's exploding. You know what? That, that doesn't help. Communications managers have a responsibility, again, to calm things down, allow for chief decision maker and deputy chief decision maker to do just that, listen to information and make decisions. So their job uh, and the senior communications leader's job to a great extent is to turn the temperature down in the war room. Try to, to help the war room, the rapid response team, prosecute the steps in the reputation dissonance model. Now, Jeff, you'd, you'd mentioned that the, the senior communications leader might also be the spokesperson, but ideally, uh, 
Do you want to have separate people in, in these roles? I like the idea of a senior communications leader always being ready to be that spokesperson. And it's good to have that person default uh, in the rapid res response team plan. This is our default person. But there are times when a subject matter expert is much better suited, more authentic as a messenger, which is another important part of our re reputation dissonance model, the messenger part. Oftentimes there's another expert depending on the situation, who is more suited to be that person. So in that event, senior communications leader is the one to say, you know what, Russ, today you're the, you're the right person to deliver this message. Let's go get ready. Yep, makes a lot of sense. And I, I know this uh, may probably a topic for a whole other podcast, but boy, you going through these roles in the war room really – emphasizes how critical it is to have simulation practice uh, with your with your war room and defining these roles. I'm heading up to Pittsburgh in a couple of weeks. You might remember when we went up to Pittsburgh with our client there, and <laughs> this is how you know you run a good simulator. You and I were doing this. Uh, it's when the, one of the senior people in the simulator says, I hope I never see you ever again. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. And when you, uh, the idea is that when you practice it, you have a better chance of not ever having to be in that situation for real. It's true. And you know what? Um, the very, in that same year, they had a really serious incident. And so I saw the same person who said that to you. And um, he put his arm around me and said, uh, thanks for being an ass. <laughs> <laughs> but I bet he was glad they had that practice. Yep. Deep he was, down. Yep. He was. And um, it was a, that was a great training because it reminded me we were in full simulation mode. I mean, we were showing escalating videos and social media. They had all kinds of screens. We made them do interesting uh, stand-ups right in front of camera. Then we got to grade them in front of themselves. We were very nice about it. Yeah, they, we were, they were exhausted, they but were exhausted. I, th I think they were, were glad they, they went through it. Yeah, we were, we're very nice in, when it comes to that kind of work. I've been through simulators where uh, the team running it just thinks it's so funny and cool to ambush people and make them feel terrible and humiliate them. Yeah, I, I, I guess you don't, you don't leave at the end of the day after something like that feeling confident when you've been beat down, so it's a balance. Absolutely right. Yeah, and that's, I think, one of the things I love about our simulators and the spokesperson training workshops you run. They're real confidence boosters. And it's important because we look at these roles inside of the rapid response team, and you can imagine the opportunity for failure is high in every one of these. And there's also the added pressure of the lawyers. <laughs> yeah, I was gonna. I was wondering about that. I, I I am sure that there needs to be a role for legal counsel in a Gotta war room. You know, the um, lawyers and PR people sometimes view themselves as. Uh, vinegar and oil, but honestly, a great rapid response team can't work without either of them. There's, they have a personality clash or contrast, but there's really important reasons why that tension helps a rapid response team move itself through the progression of decisions it needs to make. The most important th uh, things to think about, though, 
let's just address our friends who are the, the senior communication leaders, communications managers. Why are lawyers the way they are inside of a rapid response team, inside the war room? Well, look, there's, uh, there are a number of sources to talk about for this, and we've been in these situations a number of times. But, you know, you kind of come to a few personality traits that make legal counsel's role both valuable and frustrating inside the war room. Well, I'll tick down just a few of these. First of all, we have to understand that lawyers are trained to compete. They, they argue as a way of getting to the, uh, the crux of an issue. Argument is their method and how they're trained to reach a logical conclusion. That th through that argument, they're often too, they're, they just don't get emotional. You know, communications people often are um, guilty of being hanky twisters. They get too emotional. They're too worried about, well, what about this? And who thinks about that? And it's all so not interesting to a well-trained lawyer. They're logical, rational, and they reason for a living. So they really come at problem solving in a different way than a good communications person does who assesses the emotional intensity of an event. So that's one really important distinction between the two, why there's tension. Lawyers are also taught to have answers. You know, they, um, in the boardroom or in the courtroom, they're the ones we say, well, you're the lawyer, you know, you're the expert, you know. That's a, I think that's not fair for attorneys to be put into that kind of bind, especially in rapidly evolving situations, but it's a character trait for a lawyer to want to have an answer for their client. Oftentimes they don't. These are uncomfortable places, so a rapid response situation isn't comfortable. It's not a place where they can coolly apply precedent and use the way that they think in order to um, maneuver a client through advice. It comes with experience. On the other hand, uh, the communications leaders need to allow for that kind of reasoning and make sure that the advice today doesn't goof up the case that may be coming. So we have to play a role here to ensure that we're winning in the court of public opinion prior to going into the courtroom. Some lawyers are very resistant to this, very resistant. I've worked with them. They say, we're not going to try this case in the media. Well, that's just ridiculous these days because it's in the media. If, if you're not going to try it, then you're not trying. So you, you've got to push yourself into that space. And uh, for our lawyer friends who do this well, they understand we're going to win this in two different places, court of public opinion and in the courtroom. And there are some other roles I should, I should talk about because um, in my model for a war room team, you also have room at the table for a few subject matter experts. Situation dependent perhaps, but those situation, those subject matter experts can include uh, your chief marketing officer, your chief uh, human resources officer, facility directors, Anyone who has a very specific subject matter expertise can uh, have, a ch have a chair at the war room table. It's back to our team coordinator 
It's the team coordinator's role to identify those subject matter experts who may be called on situation dependent. And so that's our seventh chair at the table, the one that's open for the SME that we haven't yet identified, but they, they also need to be thought about as uh, we game plan the scenarios that may occur. Uh, the one big takeaway for this particular episode, what do you think that would be? Well, I guess I would say that we can't assume there's a kitchen. A, a good recipe book or a good cookbook makes that assumption. In reputation management situations, crisis situations, we can't assume that there's a kitchen that's ready built and ready to go. So if a rapid response team is going to be good at what it does, resources have to be invested in building that kitchen. That means the team, assessing the team, and then putting them through their paces so that they know their roles. I think also pieces and parts of that kitchen include things like um, the activation system and a good communications plan. Crisis, uh, a good communications plan, by the way, that is not a giant three-ring binder that no one knows what's going on in there. Instead, it's super efficient, super obvious what needs to be done when, and the few messages that need to be developed and crafted. So all of those, all of that is the big assumption of preparation by the reputation dissonance model. And every one of those things I just ticked off, that's a podcast in and of itself. The essence, though, of what we talked about today, I'll use, uh, you remember old uh, Good to Great? Yes. Jim Collins? Mm -hmm. All right, one of the fundamental principles that Collins talks about. Get the right people on the bus and get them in the right seats. That's the role of the planning, thinking, and preparation and selection of your rapid response team. Uh, Jeff, this has been a terrific overview of uh, the rapid response team and, and the different roles. Uh, what do you think we ought to talk about next time? Oh, so many opportunities for subjects. We could take on activation, which is a really interesting topic. It's the number one ball that gets fumbled in any rapid response team work. We could talk about the a crisis communication plan and what goes into it, but I think I wanna spend some time on a few core principles that drive a communications plan. They're um, kinda like the values the good rapid response team embraces, and if they do those well, they can improvise as situations unfold. So. That'll be fun for us to dive into. All right. We'll look forward to it. Jeff, thanks as always. And uh, we will talk to you next time on the next episode of Breaking Bad News. Thank you for listening to Breaking Bad News with Jenny Gregorsik and Jeff Hahn from Apron Food PR. Subscribe and learn more at apronfoodpr.com. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes. It really helps.